0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello, Lisa Leong here and you're listening to This Working Life on ABC RN Summer. Today's episode is one of your favourites. It's about what's been called anti-striving. You'll learn what making peace with feeling less ambitious can bring you in the long term.
2: Enjoy. I was working for myself and I had a little bit of luxury in terms of scheduling. That being said, I was really nervous to take a month off. Meet Dory Clark. I teach for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. I'm the author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I am coming to you from Miami, Florida.
1: Nearly a decade ago, Dory took a month off work to travel around
2: India. But honestly, the logistical hurdles were not the largest part. What weighed much more heavily on me was the emotional hurdles, because we are generally so used to going into an office, um, whether that's a literal or a metaphorical office, and working every day, it felt a little indolent to me. To take a month off, I felt a little bit embarrassed about that or like I was doing something that I shouldn't, like I was getting away with something. I had these scripts in my head that that was something that only either really rich people or really unemployed people did. (laughs) So there was a lot I had to get through. This jump
1: made Dory question
2: the usual success narrative. What is harder to measure is your life satisfaction and your ability to be enjoying things while you're working, your ability to do the things you always wanted to do and spend time with people that you want to. In recent years, as a result of experiences like this, I've developed a concept that I call Optimize for Interesting. And for me, that's now an important guiding principle because so, so often we default to just kind of working and churning and trying to bring in more revenue. But I think we need to consciously remind ourselves, because the culture mostly doesn't, that if we're not enjoying ourselves, if we're not pushing ourselves and learning and doing things that are interesting, sort of what's the point?
1: Are you feeling like there's something in the air, like you're searching for a different cadence after coming out of the blocks pretty hard? You might have heard of the lying flat movement in China and seen quiet quitting in your socials. And yet,
2: this feels different. The scenario that I am seeing, though, is for people who may actually legitimately be very engaged and ambitious with their job, with their career. They like what they're doing. It's not that they're, you know, sort of checking a box or opting out. It's that... They want a little bit more of a recalibration.
1: So what is it exactly? I've heard it being labelled anti-striving. Did you say (laughs) (laughs) ant-driving? (laughs) Anti-striving. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and welcome to This Working Life. Today, an exploration into the groundswell of anti-striving and what embracing it can give us.
2: Obviously, the past three years of the pandemic shook up just about everyone in different ways. So people began asking themselves, oh, OK, was it was it the best way that what I was doing before? Should I immediately go back to that? Or maybe I should do something different. It it opened up the possibility that there was a different way of doing things. And of course, there were a lot of people who took that as a cue to start asking larger questions about their life. What did they want? What were they hoping to accomplish? You know, you found yourself stepping off of a treadmill and you start saying, all right, is this the right treadmill? Do I want to be on a treadmill at all? And it, it led to some interesting things. I mean, there there were 50 million Americans who left their jobs last year as a result of, of all of this
1: Recently, Dory Clark says she's been hearing different conversations creeping into American business life.
2: Previously, of course, there were always some people who were not into working as hard as possible or, you know, hustling and grinding and things like that. But they often were dismissed in some ways. They were mocked sometimes as being on the so-called mommy track, whether or not they literally were a parent or not. Their commitment to the organization was questioned. These are very deep, philosophically rooted things, particularly in the United States, where we have a Puritan culture that dates back hundreds of years that basically says that work is akin to salvation. But it is, in many ways, an international phenomenon. There's been a lot more public discussion now than there really ever has been about the question of what role should work play in our lives? And should we be going all in on this, or is it equally okay to not necessarily be pushing so hard? How do we reevaluate where we get our meaning and purpose, and might it be possible for there to be waves that we're following? Maybe maybe we do want work to be giving us meaning and purpose and drive, but maybe not right now. So I think they're important conversations.
1: I think this idea that you're opting out or you're lazy or you're less than because you're either thinking in waves and taking a pause or even refocusing on something different, you know, I think that people are reassessing that.
2: I I think that's exactly right. I mean, certainly the stigma has decreased. It used to be that if you were not completely hard-charging, working late hours, bragging about working late hours, you were viewed as not a serious person, not committed, maybe not the most reliable worker. And I think there, there is a new understanding post-pandemic that's emerging that, you know, yes, of course, it's it's good to be ambitious, it's good to be committed, but it doesn't mean 24/7 we're not robots and if you want time to have more work life balance if you want to take time perhaps to test new things to have new experiences it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or that you're a bad worker it actually just means you're perhaps a more well-rounded person and ultimately that could mean a better worker
1: This is something Jamila Rizvi has noticed. She's an author and deputy managing director of Future Women. Jamila, in terms of hustle culture, where are you yourself on the hustler scale? So zero is no hustle and 10 is I hustle in my sleep.
3: I reckon I'm pretty close to the 10. I reckon I'm in the nine, 9.5. And interestingly, I reckon that is something that I have prided myself on for most of my life. And it's only been the last 12 months or so that I've started to feel ashamed of something I used to think was good. What's happened? Gen Z has happened to me. I work in an office with people of a whole bunch of different generations. Our our youngest team members are 19. We go right through to people in their 60s. So we've got a real spread in our office. And I think the arrival of some of the younger team members, particularly those in that Gen Z bracket, They're just doing it better than me. And I'm sort of watching them come to work, work their butts off, don't get me wrong, they work really hard and then at 5.30 they turn off their computer and they, they just go home.
1: So Jamila is a millennial. That generation was born between 1981 and 1996 and Gen Z are from 1997 to around 2012.
3: Millennials were taught to think that hustle culture was good. We were the generation that were... I think given the benefits of technology in a way that opened up all kinds of opportunities for us to work more and work more often, and not even in just our main paid job, but in additional jobs, right? You know, people were driving Uber in their spare time or also selling stuff they made on Etsy. Most of my friends turned their hobbies into a money-making enterprise of some kind, and I think the key difference that I'm seeing is that while millennials are kind of work till you drop sort of mentality, Gen Z are rejecting that to the extent that they can. I add that disclaimer because I think the current economic climate means you can't fully reject it because Jobs are going to become harder to come by. Money becomes more important to you when everything costs more. So I do think that is starting to have an impact. But at a general level, I am noticing that Gen Z have much more of a relaxed attitude towards work and see technology as something that can enable them to work smarter and less hard, not every second of their day.
1: There's an anti-striving movement being described at the moment. Yes. What do you see this as being?
3: A lot of it I think is a backlash from one generation to the next, but I think you can't underestimate how the pandemic has pushed all of us to a new place Where we've started to question what we're doing with our time. I think the pandemic made a lot of us think about our own mortality to to be dark for a moment and think about how we want to use our time while we're alive. And I think that has really started to shift the perception of all generations. We've seen a lot of boomers who are able to retire earlier than they would have planned. And you've got, I think, a a next couple of generations coming through who it's not that there's a decreased motivation for work, but there's an increased motivation to spend your time on the parts of life that are meaningful and fun.
0: So I think this is probably one of our greatest untapped potential to have better days at work and also to prevent more ill-being, so things like stress and anxiety at work. This is a movement that's been called Voluntary Simplicity or Simplifying Your Life. In other different areas around the world, it's called slightly different things. Uh, but to me, it's it's really about simplifying your life. Hello, I'm Associate Professor Aaron Jardin from the Centre for Wellbeing Science at the University of Melbourne.
1: So how do we sign up for this simplicity? Aaron says there are two elements to it.
0: One is doing less, uh, so that's a quantity kind of issue, and the other is really a quality kind of issue. It's doing less so that you're doing more of what's most important to you. So it's a bit like if you had a to-do list, it would be sort of cutting the bottom quarter of that to-do list off first. So you don't have sort of 20 things on your to-do list. You just have 15 or even less. Uh, but then it's looking at those 15 things and thinking, what is the most important? If I can't get through all of these, what's really most important to me and to my organization? And and not just taking them one at a time, but actually thinking about the importance there so you're simplifying but you're also prioritizing at the same time and that's where we find people get energy when they get to spend more time on work that's really valuable to them and that necessarily inherently has a simplifying aspect because if you're slowing down um, you're necessarily doing less because everyone has the same amount of time in life so you can't then slow down and do the same quantity of work so that necessarily uh, dictates an aspect of uh, both slowing down but also prioritizing as well
1: this all makes sense. Why don't we do this? What gets in the way?
0: Well, I think a lot of things drive this. One is the keeping up with the Joneses kind of an idea. Another is career ambitions that are that are kind of sold to us by our managers uh, and their performance uh, indicators and what they need. Another one's social media, and part of it I really think is you know we've just sort of fallen into this trap of just doing things like we've always done them and not really questioning whether this is of value to us, to society or to the organisation. So the way that we work, I don't think there's a really good critique over whether this is the best for us, whether it's best for society or it's best for the organisation. So there is an element of maybe we haven't really asked this question, but also when we have asked this question, we haven't really known different answers to it.
1: And then in relation then to the simplification, once we've decided to slow down and to do less but do more of the things that are left over. What is our approach to that? How do we achieve that?
0: It's a a hard one for most people because they're going so fast already. So first of all, you've got to kind of look at your plate and really prioritise what's most important before you sort of cut things off it. But really... In doing that, what I find and what the literature sort of shows, although it's a very limited literature, is that it does sort of create the space both in time and in mental effort for people to start thinking about what is meaningful work, what do they want out of life, and, and, and these sorts of things. And the, and the cholera of this is, the other part of it is, there's a great movement now to workplace well-being and well-being in general. So as psychology has kind of progressed since the early 20th century, where it was all about remediating ill-being. You know, how do we treat PTSD? How do we do How do we stop ill-being and come back from that? And it's made great progress there. But now we're at a stage of civilization where the question is also, well, what comes after that? What does thriving look like? What does flourishing look like? You know, how do people have, have a great life, so to speak? All of the well-being activities from mindfulness to living your values to a meaningful life to using your strengths, when people do them, uh, they say they work and they get benefit from them. But after a while, a lot of people stopped them and we asked them, you seem to like this, it seemed to be working for you, you had a lot of value in it, it's increasing your well-being, why did you stop? And the answer is always, I got too busy. So that's that's the point of it. If we can make space and time by slowing down and simplifying, we're creating more space for these well-being interventions to, to work better.
1: Can you share a story about someone who has tried practice and had success with it?
0: Most of the stories I know are forced simplification, I would say, and it comes to the point where People burn out, and or their mental health at where it becomes such an issue that they're forced to simplify, that, that they have to cut back. Those sort of stories usually end quite well. It gives people the time to really reflect on what's meaningful and purpose in life. It's a bit like in one of my previous careers as a clinical psychologist, I worked at a at a spinal unit. So everyone that came into that unit, you know, with a major spinal injury, had to completely rethink what they wanted out of life. So they weren't going to be, you know, if they got their spinal injury playing rugby, for example, they go through what's called post traumatic growth. They go through a phase of actually thinking about what's meaningful and purposeful in my life and and what trajectory is that going to take.
1: This term, post-traumatic growth, it
2: was something Dory mentioned as well. I don't want to get overly clinical because I am not a psychologist, but I think that we have experienced a massive societal trauma, just like some people who experience other forms of trauma are able to have what they call post-traumatic growth. I think that that's true for many professionals as well. They have taken this experience and said, you know what? I'm going to make something better out of this. I'm going to create a new direction. I'm going to choose to define myself and my career differently.
1: I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life on ABC RN Summer. I'm talking about what anti-striving means with coach and author Dory Clark. Dory, you have Three strategies to help us make peace with scaling back our
2: ambitions. Let's walk through them. So think in waves. There's such a temptation for many professionals, understandably, to just keep doing what they have been rewarded for and what they're good at. And in many ways, that's a good strategy. But it's important to note that it is not always the right strategy. We need to make sure that in our own lives, we are recognizing waves and patterns. And one of the ways that we can actually give ourselves a little bit of grace is understanding that, okay, you might be a very successful, ambitious professional in general. You, You might think of yourself that way. It doesn't mean you've suddenly become lazy or you've suddenly become a bad person because you wanna take a sabbatical for a little while to explore something new or just recharge after some really difficult times in our society. Do you have an example
1: of someone who has applied the wave theory to their own lives?
2: Yeah. I mean, I have a client, for instance, who for a number of years has been a a successful consultant. And this past year, she had in her community a natural disaster. She got affected less than some other people in the community, and she really felt a sense of wanting to give back and wanting to contribute. And for her, when she thought about what would be meaningful for her in her life and her vision of who she wanted to be, she thought, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to stretch a different part of myself. This is an opportunity for me to give back to my neighbors and my community. And so she's reallocating this year a significant portion of her time toward relief efforts and helping people in her community. That was something that, Honestly, a few years ago, she probably wouldn't have felt comfortable doing because she was so much on the success train. But now she realized, you know what? I'm making a good living. I have the margin to be able to do this. That's the reward that I'm going to give myself is the opportunity to to make this choice.
1: And I love the fact it's not a hard switch if we think of it in waves.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Now, no universal timeline. What's this
2: about? So it is... Painfully easy, as I think we all know as humans, to compare ourselves to other people. And we know it's damaging when it's teenagers on Instagram. But the truth is, a lot of professionals are doing this too. We have these scripts in our heads because we're looking around and we're saying, oh, but you know, she got promoted and she's been with a company six years. I've been with a company six years. What's wrong with me? Or any variation of that. And we're often plagued by trying to measure ourselves against other people. And it's not to say it's terrible to measure yourself. I mean, it's useful. It gives you some parameters, but we often become slaves to it. And it forces us into something that is just patently false, which is the idea that everybody should have the same path and that we should be operating in lockstep. And then
1: finally, the third strategy, understanding conditions for growth.
2: Ultimately, when it comes to making peace with feeling less ambitious, we often feel like we need to just keep plowing, that that's the path to success, that if you do more it will inevitably lead to greater outcomes. And that's true up to a point. And yet, we often get into patterns where we are just in execution mode. We need to be thoughtful about recognizing that there are, are different ways to get there. And sometimes things like taking a month off and doing something completely different can actually energize you, give you new perspectives and help you take dramatic leaps forward.
1: In Dory's book about professional reinvention, she tells the story of a woman who
2: decided to leave Wall Street. She took a massive pay cut to do a fellowship at a nonprofit environmental organization. And on one hand, you know, some people could look at that and say, wow, you failed, you're, you know, you're earning 20% (laughs) of what you used to earn. And she did this for two years. And while she's at this organization... She felt like a fish out of water. Everybody was like, "What are you doing here, Wall Street lady?" Like no one really took her seriously. They they figured she was, you know, just not a cultural fit. But the act of taking that step back of, you know, deliberately choosing to put herself in a different environment enabled her to after she finished the fellowship land a really interesting, prestigious position at a public private fellowship. And she was running their operations about finding financing for green buildings. It was a perfect combination of her Wall Street finance experience and her environmental commitment, and she wouldn't have been in a position to do it had she not taken that time to learn the environmental world and spend those two years out in the wilderness.
1: Dory, let's circle back to your own story. You took a month off, you traveled to India, you put things on hold, you had all those voices, your own voice really, just saying, Dory, you know, can you do this? Can you afford to do this? What happened
2: when you got back? So, when I got back from India, The world hadn't collapsed. (laughs) I I sort of realized in some ways, it's a little bit egotistical to assume the world will collapse when you go away because in a lot of cases, the world just actually doesn't care that much. So in some ways, that's an empowering revelation. But also I was so interested in that dynamic about how hard it had been for me to take a month off. We often think that getting off the escalator, even temporarily, is going to irrevocably damage our career or our prospects or our connections. But it's actually surprising because sometimes when we do that, it enables us to move forward more rapidly than we might have imagined or end up in a different place that's even better than what would have normally occurred had we just stayed on the the same path.
1: So Dory, how
2: is anti-striving different to quiet quitting, do you think? So quiet quitting is... Again, as I understand it, the, you know, the idea is that people are, um, essentially doing, doing what is required, but not more than what is required. You paid me for the job. I'm doing the job. (laughs) And, you know, and there's, there's plenty of people like that. You know, that's, that's a viable path too. You can imagine a situation where if somebody is not fully engaged in their job or in their career, it really doesn't make sense for them to be going to the mat for that because their interests lie elsewhere. The scenario that I am seeing, though, is for people who may actually legitimately be very engaged and ambitious with their job, with their career. They like what they're doing. It's not that they're you know, sort of checking a box or opting out. It's that they want a little bit more of a recalibration. Thanks to my guests and to producer Zoe Ferguson,
1: a former hustling millennial, and to engineer Brendan O'Neill. We've done it. There you go, Dori. I look forward to your Harvard Business Review article on ant driving.
2: Why should you have to do the driving? Why can't you get an army of ants to do it for you? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Until next time, work it, baby. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Happy New Year from the This Working Life team.
0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.